I'm Jonathan Mosen and this is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. On the show this week, more wonderful radio memories from around the world. Taking the plunge and running for national office when you're blind. We're looking for your favourite labelling methods and ways to keep your Windows computer secure. Mosen at Large Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to our Mosin at Large community. I hope that you find this informative and entertaining. If you're one of the thousands that listen to this on a regular basis, I thank you so much and welcome you back to Mosin at Large. It has been a while since I've said this, but reviews can help. So if you use a service that offers podcast reviews and you have a moment to give us a five-star review and maybe make a couple of positive comments, really appreciate that. Thank you in advance for doing that. The podcast costs you nothing if you don't mind spending just a wee bit of time and leaving a positive review while it can all help. The first thing I need to do is clear up some of the confusion that I inadvertently caused last week by giving you a wrong URL. I'm really sorry about that. We've been pretty busy with the Where With You event, and it's branded slightly differently than it used to be because it's the letter U, so We're With capital U for Ukraine, and I got the URL wrong for the page on Mushroom FM, which predates all of that change of branding. So let me be really clear about a couple of things, because dear old Sonny Jim from Florida was most confused. He phoned me in a very confused state about what was going on with the concert. So I will get it right this time. I've brailed it on my hand. Ouch. (laughs) So the We're With You event is our concert for Ukraine, and it happens on Easter Saturday in the Northern Hemisphere. It will be 2 p.m. on Easter Saturday, the 16th of April, North American Eastern Time. It will be 7 p.m. on Saturday, the 16th of April, UK time. That translates to bright and early at 6 a.m. on the 17th of April in New Zealand, Easter Sunday. So it will be on Sunday in the Southern Hemisphere. We are currently looking for blind musicians who would like to record a contribution for us. The contribution, ideally, should consist of two things. First, a wee introductory message, introducing yourself, the music that you are about to perform, and perhaps why you've decided to be a part of We're With You, the concert for Ukraine. And the second part should be, of course, the music itself. We need a good quality recording. There may be one or two that we've received that we can't use because they're just not up to a high enough standard technically. So please try and keep that in mind when you're putting your contribution together. We know that not everybody has recording studios, of course, but it does have to be a reasonable quality recording. I have started putting all this together in the last week so that I don't get swamped after submissions close on Friday, the 8th of April, North American time. So this is the last Mosin at large where I can encourage you to contribute your musicianship. you got to get it in this week. We're not going to be taking late entries because it's just too complicated a thing to put together. So please, if you are a musician and you want to contribute, please get us something. A lossless format would be extra nice, by the way, something like a FLAC file. If you can do that, that's super. We're not going to die in a ditch over that, but it would be super to get a lossless version of your recording. But as I say, I started producing this stuff over the week, and some of the material that we've received is just phenomenal. I promise you that as a listener, you are going to love the variety and the quality 
of the music that is coming in for the Where With You concert. And of course, this is what it's all about because we are raising money for the World Blind Union's Unity Fund for Ukraine. The World Blind Union are working with organizations in Ukraine, outside Ukraine, such as in Poland and other countries that are taking a large number of Ukrainian refugees. The money will make a difference. Now, I messed up the URL last week, so let me be really clear about what that URL is. There are several of them now popping up on our various broadcast partners and corporate sponsors' sites, but the Mushroom FM one that I'm responsible for is unambiguously this, <laughs> mushroomfm.com slash with you. And in this case, it's with you, the words W-I-T-H-Y-O-U all joined together mushroomfm.com slash with you all joined together. You can also, if that's confusing, go to the Mushroom FM homepage at mushroomfm.com and you will find a link for the Where With You event on the Mushroom FM homepage. When you listen to this event at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. UK on Easter Saturday, that's bright and early on Easter Sunday morning in the uh, Southern Hemisphere, we do hope that you will have your best speakers, that you'll crank it up, and that you'll also give generously to help the World Blind Union's Unity Fund for Ukraine. So I hope that helps, and we look forward to your listenership, and if you're a musician, to your contribution. Mosin at Large Podcast! Hi, Jonathan. This is Misty Kaczynski here in the great state of Indiana in the USA. I was just listening to your recent commentary on capitalizing the uh, name slash word Braille. And while I was pretty much in the former camp of not capitalizing it before, whenever I actually listened to your commentary, I definitely switched over to the latter camp pretty quickly. You wrote this article very well, or the or blog post, I should say, very well. You also made the argument quite cogently and um, certainly uh, concisely in the podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely in the latter camp now. No question. But my main question for you on this subject is, would you happen to have any kind of book recommendation that discusses the life of Louis Braille, particularly in the context of blind civil rights and uh, fighting ableism and sort of his thoughts on these subjects, and also about the persecution you mentioned against him for what he did. Preferably, obviously, uh, that book would be accessible in the U.S. and to most parts of the world. <laughs> but yeah, if you have a good, a good book recommendation about Louis Braille and some of the things you mentioned, I would very much appreciate it, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners would as well. Okay, now that I'm done stumbling over my tongue on a recording on the phone, I'll let you go now. Thanks again for all you do in connecting the blind community and speaking up for advocacy uh, for us and with us. Bye-bye now, and have a nice day. You too, Misty, and thank you for phoning in on the listener line. And don't worry, because I stumble over my worms all the time. Nothing worse than stumbling over your worms. Now, I am delighted to hear that you have been converted to the idea of spelling Braille when referring to the code with an uppercase B. It is a movement, I tell you. And it's a shame that we have had to even begin this debate and have this movement in the first place. But we will prevail. 
And thank you for listening to the argument and being willing to be convinced. Regarding a book that you could read on Louis Braille, I had a wonderful, thoughtful gift from my oldest son, Richard, for Christmas. He brought over this big box, and I thought, wow, what is in this enormous box? And I opened it up, and it was a book in four Braille volumes from National Braille Press, and it was called Louis Braille, A Touch of Genius by C. Michael Meller. M-E-L-L-O-R. And it was a wonderful thing to do over my summer when I took a month off over December and January to just read this book in hard copy Braille. It has been a very long time since I read anything in hard copy Braille, let alone a book. I read with my Braille display a lot. When things are behaving, I read with iBooks and Kindle and things. But I have not read a hard copy Braille book for a very long time. But I read this four-volume book. It was fascinating. The research was thorough. It gave you a real insight into Louis Braille's life, the appalling conditions that they experienced at that first building at the School for the Blind, which probably contributed to his ill health and his early death. And we find out about the kind of man he was, the obstacles that he faced. Regarding your references to ableism and advocacy, of course, I I don't think that Louis Braille would have used that sort of terminology because, of course, they were very different times. He was a very quiet, unassuming kind of man, very thoughtful, considered and learned. And so I think that we can look at the contribution he left us back in the 1800s through a 21st century lens. So that's one book you can read. I'm sure there are many biographies of Louis Braille, and I have read some over the years, but that is the most recent one I have read, and I really did enjoy it. Louis Braille, A Touch of Genius, and it is available from National Braille Press at nbp.org. And if others have recommendations for Louis Braille biographies, please feel free to share them. 86460-MOSIN is my number in the United States. You can call the listener line like Misty did. You can also email me with an audio attachment or just write the email down. Send it into Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. A bit of miscellany here from Andy Repshire who says... Braille, yeah. Nemeth should be capitalized too. Well, the interesting thing is Nemeth is always capitalized. There's some inconsistency there. And he continues, hi, is it okay for residents of Maine, USA to vote? No, it is not, unfortunately, Andy. This is a New Zealand-only poll. And if you go to the poll, the first vetting question, screening question is, do you live in New Zealand? And if you answer no to that question, then you can't proceed. If not, says Andy, can data from worldwide responses be tabulated for statistical analysis elsewhere? Well, maybe it's time that people call for a referendum in their country on the question of Braille with an uppercase B. It's time to claim Braille back, I think. On a totally different subject, says Andy, I'm not quite sure why totally is in there. Suppose you go to a concert. You have pretty good tickets, which means a good stereo vantage point, but loud with lots of L's. If you have Bose QC35 headphones or another noise cancelling system that lets you utilize some control over the degree of noise cancellation, you can attenuate the audio you hear with fairly flat sound. Try it. You'll never find better earplugs. Yeah, you might look a bit weird sitting there with your Bose headphones on, but 
that would be good to protect your hearing, right? Those concerts can be noisy. I remember when my hearing was much better than it is now. I would go to those concerts and I would come away really not hearing very well because they were so loud. These days I can just take my hearing aids out and that pretty much attenuates the sound right down. Another scatter shot, says Andy. Have you ever tuned in a stream on the old soup drinker or some other device and the audio buries your Amazon Jaws or name it voice? People think they need to push streams up to the 100% peak level. There are standards. Some of us call them LUFs, loudness unit full scale. This should bother anyone using a smart speaker, not just us fussy blind folk. I have just begun pleading this case to stations with whom I have an issue. You go, Andy. There are standards, and I think that Spotify likes their streams quite high, like negative 16 or negative 14 laughs. That is quite loud. Mosin at large is at negative 16 laughs because we do produce the podcast in stereo. And I try to keep the Mushroom FM stream at a reasonable laughs level. Now, technically... The European Broadcast Union standard is all the way down at negative 23. I can't recall what the US broadcast standard is. It might be slightly louder. That is quite quiet, but it is the standard. So there is all sorts of confusion out there. But yes, it's not a way to ingratiate yourself with people over pushing the volume on the streams. Marissa says, hello, Mr. Mosin. My question for you today, if I may, is regarding the best labeling system you have found for identifying frozen poultry, beef, pork, etc. For example, most people who have sight would place the above mentioned items in freezer safe Ziploc bags and write with a Sharpie the date and what the item is prior to placing said item in the freezer. Being that my writing with any implement is atrocious and illegible, what are my options? I am legally blind, just so you are aware. I am all for using the computer as opposed to a paper and pen. Technology of any kind that makes my life easier is welcome. I am aware that the iPhone has very powerful OCR apps. There is always Ira and Be My Eyes. I try to reserve using the latter for when I really need some form of assistance. Thanks, Marissa. You are spoiled for choice in this regard, so I'm sure that somebody is going to write in, and possibly several people will write in with various options that work for them. There are some barcode solutions, whether they be standalone or apps, that may do the job here. We use way around tags, and I'm pretty sure that you could find the right form factor for a way around tag and attach it to the freezer bag, and it would be reusable if you used some sort of rubber band to hold the tag in place. Then next time you needed to use it, you could just replace the thing that said poultry on another bag that has poultry. So that would probably work. All kinds of barcode things. So let's just open it up and see what people would suggest for labeling those sorts of items. It's a great question. It's a practical question that a lot of people will have answers for. Imke is writing in and says, Hello, Jonathan. I am currently reviewing my choices for security software and my Windows PC and iPhone. And I'm wondering what your and your listeners' thoughts are on the best choices in terms of both effectiveness and accessibility. 
For most of my time using a Windows computer, I have run antivirus software like some kind of McAfee, Norton, AVG, and most recently Avast. But I find that the configuration options of such software is often not easily accessible. So I mostly hope that the software does its job automatically. I would like to be able to take a more active role in my computer's protection. Here are some specific questions. 1. I am reading that Avira, A-V-I-R-A, is one of the best antivirus software out there in terms of virus detection. However, like all antivirus programs I have tried, Avira seems to only be partially accessible with NVDA. I submitted a support ticket to Avira to ask about accessibility with NVDA or JAWS. I received a reply on the next workday informing me that their software is not optimized for this application, but we have customers who use it in these conditions without any problems. Are any of those customers listening to this podcast? Is anyone able to configure Avira with NVDA or JAWS and use its functions? If so, I am interested in any tips for doing so. 2. I am also considering purchasing Avira Prime in order to get access to their web protection and VPN service on all of my devices. Does anyone have experience with the accessibility of those portions of the software on Windows and or iOS? 3. What presently seem to be the most accessible and effective programs out there for antivirus protection? Phishing slash malware slash web protection and secure browsing for example, via VPN. 4. On my iPhone, I use the program AdGuard for ad blocking. It appears to be quite accessible and works unobtrusively. With Apple already paying considerable attention to security, what level of protection should we be using on our iOS devices? Thanks, Imke. Hopefully you'll get some recommendations emailed or called in. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com if you want to email an audio attachment or write something down. The listener line number, 864-60-MOSIN if you want to be in touch. 864-606-6736. That number is in the United States. For those who use third-party security, the most popular one that I hear about anyway in the blind community appears to be ESSET, Smart Security. I don't know how good it is at the moment. I used to use it years ago. And then I just realized that Windows Defender, if you know what you're doing, if you don't go places that you shouldn't, if you're remotely cognizant of risk, is just fine. And what I find is that most people are now just using Windows Defender. It's accessible. It runs in the background. It does its thing. I've not had any issues whatsoever since dumping these third-party tools and using Windows Defender. There are a lot of good VPN tools out there. My favorite is Surfshark at the moment. It has an extension that works on Chromium browsers. That's all right. The full app is a little bit dodgy on Windows from an accessibility perspective, but it's very accessible on iOS. And the price is right too. So that is Surfshark worth considering. If you use the Brave browser, then they actually have Tor built in to Brave. So they take their security very seriously. If you haven't checked out Brave on Windows, then it may be worth doing so from a security point of view. You are right that because of the sandboxed approach of iOS, 
the risk of anything happening to your iPhone is considerably less, but it's not non-existent. I use one of those extensions as well. I think the one I'm currently using is called Wiper, spelled without an E, so W-I-P-R. And I looked at the reviews, and that one seemed all right, so I got that one. And like you say, with your extension, it just runs in the background and it does its thing. So I am a very happy Windows Defender user, have been for years, and actually it is much better now than it's ever been. I think quite a few people say that it is a credible adequate tool and that Microsoft have made a lot of progress. You will find people who say otherwise, of course. So we'll open this up and we'll see what people have to say. Michael Pantelides writes in and says, hi, Jonathan, hope you are all doing well and thanks for all the fish. Oh, no, no. Sorry, I misread that. Thanks for all the work you do for us. Last year, you helped me set up an iCloud Drive shortcut for my Dell laptop and it worked until... Oh, no, you've broken it, Michael. You've broken it. It worked until I upgraded to Windows 11 without even knowing it. Well, now when I copy a file to my iCloud Drive folder, it will not upload for some reason. The files are not big and I have plenty of space available on iCloud. Any help would be very much appreciated, says Michael. Well, the first thing I often tell people with computers is turn it off and back on again. Or (laughs) in the case of software, try uninstalling it and reinstalling it again. I think that would be my first step. It could be that something between 10 and 11 just got corrupted or broken. If you can, try completely removing the iCloud app and then reinstalling it. That can often help, and obviously you'll then be invited to log in again. That may just be enough, the combination of a fresh install and a fresh login, to get you up and running again. Another thing to consider, is it just the shortcut that is broken? So if you find your way to the actual iCloud Drive folder in File Explorer, you browse all the way to it rather than accessing that shortcut, does it work then? Because if that's the case, then you may just need to recreate the shortcut. Perhaps it's in a slightly different location on a Windows 11 system. If that doesn't work, I think I would be on the phone to Apple about this one. I can't immediately think what else it might be. If you can see that it is running in the system tray, and of course, now that you're on Windows 11, you will need to just check that the iCloud option is visible in the system tray because not everything is. It is one of my big frustrations about Windows 11. You've got to go into that hidden area and expose the icons that you want. If it's all running, it looks like it's running. If you know how, you could go into Task Manager and check that the process is running. If all that is true, and it will be if you uninstall and reinstall again, and it still isn't working, the only thing I can think of is to give Apple a call. However, if someone else has had direct experience of this problem and solved it, please feel free to share. 864-60-MOSIN. If you have some help for Michael here, 864-606-6736 or jonathan at mushroomfm.com on the email. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org 
That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosen at Large. Hey, Jonathan, Mark Bayarjan in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I grew up in the 60s here prior to leaving for Nova Scotia. And in the early 60s, of course, FM was a new thing in Montreal. I remember going to the Montreal Association for the Blind starting in 61. And about a year later, I remember a whole plethora of FM stations coming on air fairly rapidly over the years between 62, 63, and 64. Most of them started out as simulcast of AM stations with maybe a couple of hours of separate programming. CFCF FM at 92.5, which eventually became CFQR in 1966, if I recall. CJFM, which was the FM station for CJAD on 800 on 92.5. Several French stations, of course, and one that was French and English, CKVL-FM, which the call letters now belong to a different owner of a community radio station, but back then, the parent station was CKVL on 850 AM. And they did a whole bunch of different programming in the 60s with various themes that lasted for 15 minutes to a half hour to two hours a day. One in particular I remember on CKVL-FM was Make Believe Ballroom, which was a big band thing from 4 to 6 p.m. in the afternoon. Their newscasts were in English and French, about two and a half minutes each with news, brief sports, and weather. Eventually, it became a totally French radio station, went to oldies for a while, automated, and eventually hard rock, and eventually pop, which is now CKOI-FM. The the fun thing about listening to all those stations coming on the air for me was the testing, the tones, the experimentation, the separation of, from one channel to another and doing balance tests and whatnot. An explanation maybe of what stereo was and how it worked. And you had those big pieces of furniture that had an FM radio and turntable in. And that was my first recollection of FM stereo. So for me, there were a lot of memories. But then I went to Nova Scotia University at Acadia in Wolfville, about 60 miles from Halifax, which only had one FM station at the time playing country. I believe the power output was like 50,000 watts FM, which is not a strong signal. And if we were lucky, we could get it in Wolfville in the beginning of the Annapolis Valley. From there, uh, the big station that first opened up, and I was in a radio broadcasting course at the time, was C100 FM, an easy listening station which was, I believe, owned by Chum Group out of Toronto. And I knew some of the people who worked there because they were also instructors at the broadcasting course. A guy named George Jordan, who I still correspond with on Facebook today. And uh, I remember C100 opening up and playing test music, easy listening, and announcing that in two weeks' time they'd be starting and we're just experimenting and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And... Uh, Of course, I left Halifax and moved to Edmonton, 
where FM was again being established and started out maybe with three FM stations and gradually the all-news station of the time, CKO out of Toronto, had an FM outlet in Edmonton. I recall that. And then there were other stations that came on, CKNG-FM at 92.5 and the country music station at 103.9, an oldie station which was originally on 1070 in AM in St. Albert, a bedroom community of Edmonton, moved to 104.9 in the mid-2000s, I believe. So I was fortunate for me to have been in various locations when FM was just blossoming. And I loved to do the DX thing, when the summer skip came in and you'd get stations from North Carolina up at the cottage at Boker Lake in Quebec here, we only had one FM station out of Sherbrooke and eventually got some others that were from Burlington, Vermont, uh, with transmitters on top of Mount Mansfield. Uh, WEZF, I remember in particular, out of Burlington, which was an easy listing station and is now Star 92.9, I believe, a pop station. So for me, a lot of memories of FM stations and their inauguration of the FM band in Halifax, in Montreal, in Edmonton, a lot of good memories. Hello again, this is Joe Norton here in Dalton, Georgia, and this discussion of radio made me think of something that I hadn't really talked much about, but it's kind of interesting, I think. When I was a kid back around 1979, I was curious about shortwave, but I did not have a shortwave receiver. One of the things I was curious about was station WWV, and also CHU in Canada, but I'd heard about WWV from several people. It was a station that gave the time every minute, and I thought that was interesting. But I didn't have a receiver to pick it up. A friend of mine put his phone up to his receiver and let me hear it, and I could hear the ticking that went on, but couldn't hear too much because his reception wasn't that good at the particular moment. But at any rate, I had acquired an old AM radio from somewhere and I was tuning around the band and all of a sudden, along with three or four different voices talking, and one of them was speaking Spanish, by the way, and this is significant, I could hear a ticking. It was ticking every second, like something like that. And I wondered, what is this? Is this some kind of time station? Am I picking up WWV? I thought maybe the radio had been messed up. Maybe something got twiddled inside it or something went wrong and suddenly it was picking up shortwave. However, I wasn't 100% sure of this because every minute there was a tone and there was a little bit of Morse code, which WWV doesn't use, but I couldn't really understand anything else that I was hearing and there were a lot of voices, at least two or three voices speaking. So I really didn't know what I was listening to. I eventually did get to hear WWV even before I acquired a shortwave receiver, and this was in an interesting way. The local Air Force base in my area was Robbins Air Force Base in Warner Robins, Georgia, and they had a number that they called a time hack. And basically what this was was if you needed to set your watch or something like that, you'd call this number to see what time it was. Interestingly enough, though, the time was given in GMT, now UTC, but what they used was a machine that used magnetic drum recordings. It was a time announcing system made by Audicron, and 
The voice was a guy named Don Elliott Heald, who also did the voice for WWV in the earlier days of the station. But this gave the time every five seconds sort of like this. One hour, 39 minutes, five seconds. Beep! One hour, 39 minutes, 10 seconds. Beep! So on and so forth. And you could call this number and set your watch by it. But not all the Air Force bases around the country did it this way. Many of them maybe couldn't get the funds for a drum machine like that. Those were pretty expensive. So what they would do is take a shortwave receiver and hook it up to the phone, hook it up to two or three phone lines, and when the phone was answered, the shortwave receiver would be tuned to WWV. One of the Air Force bases that did this was Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska, and this is something that Elmendorf, as well as a few other bases, did back in those days. What they would do was to set this thing up so that you could call it, and the telephone Lines were wired up in such a way that the supervision signal would not be passed back to the calling end. What this basically meant was the phone was answered, but your telephone switch didn't know that the call was answered, so you weren't billed for the call. And I could call this number and just sit on it and listen. So I got to hear what WWV sounded like. It was a nice loud receiver that was tuned to WWV, and I got to hear it. And indeed, I also in the mornings could hear JJY as well as one other station at least. I don't know if it was the Soviet time station. I understand they used to have one a long time ago. So by that time, I knew what WWV sounded like, and eventually I got my own shortwave receiver. But I was still puzzled as to what this thing I picked up on this AM radio was. Well, it turns out that it was a station in Cuba. Cuba also has a time station. It is called Radio Reloj, which is Spanish for radio clock. This time station is unique. For this reason, it doesn't use recorded announcements for the time. There are actual people in the studio who are sitting there and reading the time every minute, along with news items from the government news agency. And they still have a tick every second. According to its Wikipedia page, the station's been operating continuously since 1947. This would mean that it was operating before the Cuban Revolution and continues to this day. This station broadcasts on the medium waves, in other words, the AM broadcast band, so I imagine many people that are not close to Cuba might not actually hear this station. It's funny that I can still pick it up from where I am. I am probably about 800 miles away from Havana. And here's what it sounded like when I tried to hear it on my car radio this evening. And I've got my car radio here on 610, and I'm going to see if I can hear Radio Reloj. If you listen very carefully, I believe you will be able to hear the ticking, a beep, and the Morse code RR. So you might think that that would appear to be that. However, there's more to this. It turns out that Radio Reloj is also now on the internet, and they actually have a live stream that you can listen to. Here's a sample of what it sounds like when you hear the time announcement. I'll let you hear just a little bit of the news that's being read. Not too much, because I doubt if many of you can understand Spanish. But you'll be able to hear the beep as well as the time announcement and the Morse code RR. Here it is from the stream. Programa Nacional de Educación para la Reforma Agraria. Radio Reloj. 11, 12 minutos. ONU pide un cese al fuego en Ucrania. 
All right, so if you didn't understand Spanish, you could probably still tell he finished reading a news item. You could hear him say, Radio Reloj. There was a short beep, followed by the time announcement and a Morse code RR. Then he goes into reading the next news item. Although this sounds pretty cut and dried, there's one more thing I wanted to demonstrate. The beep that occurs every five minutes in a cycle, say zero minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and so on and so forth, is a longer beep. In order to demonstrate this, I wanted to show you that there's one guy who really seems to enjoy his job. Here's what it sounded like at 7 o'clock in the morning earlier today, and you'll be able to recognize that this guy has a very distinct voice. See if you can catch it, and imagine waking your family up to this. Daniel Pereira Brito, Argelia Pera, y Marlon Marlon, Radio Reloj. Siete en punto de la mañana. Seguidamente los titulares del estelar, el matutino. Resaltan el primer secretario del partido y el canciller cubano clamor. So there you have it. You can tell this guy has a very distinct voice. And when he says siete en punto de la mañana, seven o'clock in the morning, he really means it, it sounds like. And I've heard him do that more than once. So this may be a regular thing for him, I'm not really sure. But there's no question that he gets your attention. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about the station. Other than if you want to know its web address, you can go to www.radioreloj.cu and I will spell that uh, phrase out. R-A-D-I-O-R-E-L-O-J So it's radioreloj.cu and there's a page in Spanish that comes up and there's also an English page that you can find if you search for it. It's not too hard to find. But there's a play button you can hit that'll actually let you hear the stream. And speaking of streams, if you have a Victor stream and you go to search Utunes under the Internet Radio category, you can actually search for Radio Reloj is two words, R-A-D-I-O-R-E-L-O-J, and it's there. So, if you have a Victor stream and you really want to hear this station, it is possible to hear it. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw something out there that if you don't live near the Caribbean, you might not know about in terms of radio. This is a station that's actually got quite a history, apparently. So, my best wishes for everyone, including the upcoming concert. I hope that goes great. It sounds like it's really shaping up. I think so. Thank you, Joe. That was a very interesting contribution. And also to Mark before him for his contribution on Radio Memories. I do remember listening to WWV, and as I recall, there were two stations that shared the same frequencies. There was WWV and WWVH, and I'm not sure why that was, but they were on the same frequencies, and they were sort of in sync, and they made slightly different sounds. And we could pick them both up on shortwave here in New Zealand. So you would hear a man talking on one of them and a woman talking on the other one, giving the time coming up. And I don't know how they managed it, but they were in perfect sync, so they didn't really seem to interfere with one another. The signals didn't seem to clash. So perhaps there is somebody who has more of a backstory on the WWV and WWVH stations. I also remember that there was an Australian station that you could get on shortwave that gave the time. And I also remember listening on, I think it was 1610 kilohertz, to this beacon in Ohura, of all places, which is a place that I used to visit quite a lot. And they used to just broadcast the letter O followed by the letter R in Morse over and over again. And I'm not sure why, 
that was on 1610, because I think there were a few other beacons on long wave. You can call, I think, WWV. You used to be able to, and I think it was on the Mosin explosion many years ago now that somebody told me that you could do this, and I put the number in my phone because I thought, wow, this is quite exciting. No static or anything like that. You can just call it up anytime. And I do remember listening, calling in, so that I could hear the leap second. To keep everything in sync every so often, you get a leap second and you get an extra second in a minute. And I remember listening to that. I wonder if you can still call them. Because now I've got a plan with my cellular provider that lets me make international calls. You know, minutes are so cheap these days, they don't care. So I can make all sorts of calls. Let me just see. Call WWV. Just to confirm, you'd like to call WWV. Work? Yes. Calling WWV. Work. Phone call. WWV. There it is. There it is. Oh, I can hear myself echoing back. Oh, I can hear myself echoing back. That's a fun trick. That's a fun trick. Let's just wait for the minute to go by. You get a free echo into the bargain. And I'm not talking about the one from Amazon. Just wait for the time to tick over here. Meanwhile, I can tell you that if you want to be in... 18 hours, 53 minutes, coordinated universal time. There it is. Sometimes there was that tone accompanying the seconds, and they do make announcements of different kinds as well from time to time. Not quite as exciting as that Cuban station, which I had not heard of before. Imagine working on that thing. We also have a local clock number. In the 1990s, we got 0900 numbers here. So we first got 0800 numbers, toll-free, which was borrowed from the 800 area code in the United States. And then they eventually introduced 900 numbers. But they didn't become the Wild West that I understand 900 numbers became in the United States, where there were all sorts of naughty numbers you could call. But there were various services that charged for premium content. And I actually ran one for a while with my brother. We provided sports information on a 900 number. There are very few 900 numbers left in action now, but I'm pretty sure the time one still works with uh, Keith Richardson voicing it. I'm not even sure that Keith Richardson's still alive. Let's see if this works. Call 0900-45678. Just to confirm, you'd like to call 0900-45678? Yes. Calling 0900-45678. You're going to pick up? Maybe they don't pick up anymore. Oh, no. Welcome to the Industrial Research Limited Talking Clock. That's bad audio, isn't it? On preferred tone, the time will be 7 hours, 55 minutes, 0 seconds. On preferred tone, the time will be 7 hours, 55 minutes, 
10 seconds. So there you go, Joe. That's similar to the one that you were talking about, where they were giving you the time every 10 seconds, but uh, no built-in echo back on that one. I suspect that was just a dodgy international circuit when we called WWV, but you do get the time every 10 seconds and a lot of hiss there. That is an old, old service, and I wonder how much it costs per minute to call that now. Hi, Jonathan. It's Peter from Robin Hood County, hoping you and your family are well and also all Mosin at Larges. Well, being ancient, I can remember quite a few radio stations launching. Radios 1, 2, 3 and 4, which replaced the home service um, for Radio 4. Radio 3 was the third network. Radio 2 was the light programme. And Radio 1 was born to give us pop music which basically replaced the pirate stations that were closed. But now, with the clock ticking slowly up to 7am, it's going to be time to welcome Radio 1's first daily show on 247 metres medium wave, whilst Breakfast Special continues on Radio 2. Ten seconds to go before Radio 1, Tony Blackburn, and Radio 2, Paul Hollingdale, stand by for switching, get tuned to Radio 1 or 2, 5, 4, 3, Radio 2, Radio 1, go! The voice of Radio 1 Just for fun Music Too much And good morning everyone, welcome to the exciting new sound of Radio 1. Then followed local radio, Radio Nottingham launched around 1969, I think, I can't be sure. It may even have been later. But I think Radio Leicester launched before Radio Nottingham. Then in the 80s we had Radio Trent, which was a commercial station, which morphed into one of the gold stations, I think, that plays um, old music, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. And in the 90s we had a couple of local radio stations here which had short-term licences, one was called Globe FM and one was called Heatwave. And they played reggae, calypso, mento, high life, quella, that kind of music. Mostly from Africa, uh, the Caribbean, etc. And the two very localised radio stations have now gone as far as I know. But the rest are still flourishing well. When Radio 1, 2, 3 and 4 launched, I was at boarding school and there was a lad in our dormitory with a radio and it was a great moment on Saturday morning, listening to the launch and that kind of thing. It was brilliant. And of course, Radio 7 disappeared, didn't it? And morphed into 4 Extra so they could put put all their rubbish programmes on Radio 4 Extra that nobody wanted to listen to. Like, quote-unquote. Hello, Jonathan. I am also a huge radio geek. You know, I, I love listening to a lot of, you know, radio station format changes and things like that. But there is one in particular that literally just, you know, gave me chills. And it got me quite emotional. It was a radio station out of New York that changed their format back in 2019 it was uh, 955 plj out of new york and it just you know it, it got me really emotional because the djs were really getting you know raw about 
you know, the fact that they were losing their jobs and a lot of you, they were realizing, they were, you know, trying to realize what they were going to do with their lives. But I think the thing that got me the most emotional was at the end of the radio station, when they were about to sign off, they literally played the last few seconds of the end by the Beatles off of their Av- uh, their Abbey Road album. And it's just... It, when I... You know, when I heard that, I just... I just effectively lost it, pretty much. Because it's like, that's when it just hit me. You know, this is the last time we're going to hear these guys. You know, you could hear it in their voice, too, you know... Helps, you know, they were really. It was honestly one of the most professional sign offs I've heard, but it was also just chilling, you know, because they were losing their jobs and a lot of the DJs were getting really emotional towards the end. So it just, you know, it honestly just gave me chills. And, you know, I, it, it really is sad that, you know, terrestrial radios you know as we go towards streaming services you know it's like i feel like in a way it's dying in a sense but we really need to realize that it's not you know because radio can be there for us in you know situations of emergency and things like that. Thank you for your contribution, Andy. I did hear that sign-off. And yeah, it was really emotional, especially the breakfast show people and the way that they signed off. It was quite a big deal because that station was a significant contributor in its day to the New York market. I think ratings had started to suffer for a wee while. Another really good US sign-off that I've heard is the sign-off of 93KHJ And the last hour or two of that was quite spectacular because they went through and played a montage of all of the jingles which reflected all of the formats that KHJ in Los Angeles had done. The way that people listen to radio is definitely changing. We only have one actual radio in the house, and that's for emergencies. When we listen to a radio station, we listen on our Sonos devices. But radio is still, I think, alive and vibrant if you know where to find it. And my views on this are pretty well known because of the internet radio work that I have done. But in an era where you can dial up pretty much any song that you want on any number of streaming music services, you just need to ask your personal assistant of choice to play the song that you're after, and chances are very high that you will get that song. What makes radio special, and to me what makes radio special, is the thing that's always made radio special, and that is the relationship that listeners and broadcasters forge together. That's why I have never been a fan of the idea of just putting a radio station on automation and letting the music play, and on stations like Mushroom FM, we do whatever we can to have a voice stringing all of our music together. And you illustrate in your contribution the power of that because that close down that you heard obviously had a huge impact on you. It's three years ago now, and yet you still remember it and it moves you. And that's because of the people who were a part of your life 
that were suddenly disappearing. And I've been a part of this too, you know, in the 1990s in the radio industry in New Zealand. Radio stations were changing owners and changing formats. It became this really deregulated mess in New Zealand. So I was let go as a result of a format change or two. And you do get listeners who call in and are very emotional. This is often why when there's a format change, radio station management wants to make it clean and quick and they don't even give people a chance to say goodbye. Because often when they do get a chance to say goodbye, it doesn't always end well. But radio is alive and well, and it is about those relationships. Sure, the music that you listen to will bring back memories of where you were when certain songs were playing, how old you were when you were at school, that sort of thing. But the people who played you that music are also really special. We'll all have our favorite broadcasters, the people who presented it, who brought the music to us because we liked the way that they did it. And that's the kind of radio that we're continuing to create on Mushroom FM, and I think it's really important. Back to Menulog now. Remember Menulog? We talked about this food delivery service for Australia and New Zealand a few weeks ago. Carolyn Pete says, Hi, Jonathan. I am not impressed with Menulog either. Today I ordered some food for lunch, and lunch was delivered, but not to me. I used the chat function and discovered it was up the road at a different address. They would not get the driver to pick it up and deliver it to the right place. They offered me a $35 voucher and I said no, as there was no way I would ever spend that much on a meal when I live alone. I said they are obligated under New Zealand consumer law to refund me the cost of my order. She agreed to do that, but it'll take five days. Why bother having the phone contact in the app? if they are not going to answer and just push us towards the app and website. Thanks, Carolyn. Yeah, we did finally use our $35 menu log voucher, but still, at the time of recording, we only have a limited number of restaurants. All those wonderful, yummy central business district restaurants that we once had access to are gone to us still. Gone to us, they are. There is one restaurant on Menulog that we can still have access to that we actually quite like and is not available on any other platform. And we've ordered it a couple of times since my awful experience. And so far, we haven't had any problems. But it's weird, isn't it, when you get food delivered to you that's not for you? I remember being on a call with our chief operating officer at work. And the doorbell rang and I said to him, let me just go and see what's at the door. He said, what have you bought this time? (laughs) And I said, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't bought anything. There's no parcel that I'm aware of being delivered. So I went up to the door wondering if it was some sort of marketing person, opened the door and I could smell this food. And I thought, that's weird. And I went out and there was this bag and I picked up the bag, took it inside to find out what's in this bag. And all this coffee was leaking outside the bottom of this paper bag. It was gross and it made a mess in our little vestibule as you come in the front door. So when I realized it was Uber Eats with coffee pouring down my leg, I went out and I said, Oi, oi, I said, this isn't mine. I didn't order it. So he took it away. Soaky paper bag and all. But if you were just sitting there minding your own business, say, at lunchtime, and you get someone at your door, and it's a really delicious meal that you didn't order or pay for, and it's sitting there tempting you, 
And the driver has already left because all our deliveries at the moment are contactless due to the pandemic. So they ring the bell and sprint and go on to their next thing. So if you are not able to contact the driver because it's not your order, so you can't go into the app and contact the driver, what would you do? How long would you leave it? 20 minutes? 30 minutes? And then the food starts to get cold? And suddenly temptation gets the better of you and you open that bag and you chow down on that food that you didn't order? Maybe there will be repercussions. Maybe there won't. Maybe they'll come back and say, we delivered something that wasn't yours. What do you do in that situation? And you say, well, I ate it. I mean, it was just sitting there. I gave you reasonable time. You didn't pick it up. And now I've eaten it. Do they have the right to charge you? How would they do that? Hmm, things that make you ponder. An email from Dawn, which says, Hi, Jonathan, I don't know whether other people find this, but I find the lack of some sort of sound when the screen of my phone comes up most annoying, especially when I've had to restart my phone for some reason, and there is no sound to let me know that the phone has successfully rebooted. I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to include a sound when the phone first turns on. What do others think? Well, Dawn, I've been saying ever since I got an iPhone, and it's a very long time ago now, that I just don't understand why the phone doesn't give a little vibration when you first power it on. When I used to do a lot of iPhone training, this was a real bugbear for many people, that they hadn't held the power button down long enough, or they'd held it down too long, and the phone hadn't restarted. And if the phone would only give a gentle vibration, like most phones do, that would sort that out. It'd be good if we could jailbreak the iPhone and put the Nokia startup sound ding 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 at the beginning or something. But it's a fair point. A vibration when you first power it on and maybe an optional startup sound. And of course, Apple did backtrack with startup sounds on the Mac. They went through a period where the Macs didn't make a startup sound and people said, oi, bring it back. So it would be nice to think that there would be at least an option to have a sound when the iPhone came on. But I think that little vibration, that haptic feedback when you first power it on, is an essential accessibility tool. What do you think about this? 864-60-MOSIN is my number in the United States. 864-606-6736. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com if you want to attach an audio clip or write something down. Let's talk some more about what some people consider one of the most elusive iOS gestures. It's the two-finger scrub. Here is Iwana who says, Hi, Jonathan. I'm responding to your listener who was having some issues with the scrub gesture. Since you mentioned this is a gesture that appears to be problematic for many people, I thought I'd mention how I use it and get it to be perfectly reliable in case this helps someone. Imagine that the screen of your device is dirty and you need to scrub it clean. No need to think of performing a Z from left to right. I just use two fingers to flick up, down, and up again without my fingers leaving the screen. They move parallel to the left and right edges of my iPhone. In fact, only one direction change is sufficient for the gesture to be registered for me. So just up and back down will do it. I get to exercise the gesture even by flicking down, up, and down again. So for me, the main requirements to get the gesture to work Move the two fingers swiftly, exactly like you'd do to scrub off a surface. Keep the motion continuous. In other words, don't stop before changing direction. Moving your fingers along the same trajectory back and forth feels natural for me and gets recognized every time. 
Another way to think of the movement is curling and uncurling your fingers while the tips are touching the screen. I understand that this is easier to show than put into words, but I thought I'd give it a go, hoping this can help some listeners tame this elusive gesture. Thanks for all your great work in sharing such interesting content and for facilitating such inspiring exchanges in the lively Mosin at Large community. Thank you very much, Iwana, and I appreciate you sharing that. I hope it helps somebody who's having difficulty with the gesture. Ali Kazi is writing in and says, Hi, Jonathan. Recent discussions on the show coincided with my desire to buy a new computer, so I thought I'd chime in with a thought or two. I am finally getting rid of my trusty HP laptop. Why? Partly because the Realtek audio driver is driving me up the wall. And partly, I just wanted a new toy to play with. I have found over the years that, at random intervals, my JAWS speech, which I have routed through my internal speakers, become quiet and muffled, as if I am hearing it through a telephone. It sometimes fixes itself when the sound goes to sleep after a period of inactivity and then wakes back up. Recently, however, the thing just would not stop playing up, and only an upgrade to Windows 11, which was not in the pipeline for me, solved the problem. So I figured it was about time I got rid of it. Ali, I have seen this. When I had an HP, which was quite a nice thing, an HP Spectrefolio, a rockin' leather laptop, I saw this too with the speakers. It is annoying. It really is. And Ali continues, I decided that I would pay for someone to build me a customized desktop with all the bells and whistles. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a hazy memory of you mentioning that you had your studio computer custom built and maxed out with as much power as possible. Yes, I did. It was built by Henry, the wonder son-in-law, and it was a great co-design project, a good way to bond with your son-in-law. Anyway, on with the email. I am planning to install an internal sound card into the tower to avoid ever having to deal with real tech drivers. Have you got an additional internal sound card? If so, do you have any recommendations? I am leaning towards a Sound Blaster one since they appear to be popular, according to my research. Well, yes, obviously I'm dealing in audio, and so I use the built-in sound card, which seems to behave itself for JAWS speech coming into my mixer, because you're going to get no argument from me that if you were to look up Realtek in the thesaurus, you would get abomination as a synonym. But when I'm using Realtek stuff on the desktop, it doesn't seem to be nearly as bad. It seems to be tolerable. So I do use the Realtek card for JAWS speech. But I also have an audio interface, which is a Focusrite 8i6. It's got lots of inputs and outputs. And it's a brilliant audio interface, apart from the fact that the software for it is annoyingly inaccessible. That said, once you've got it set up and configured at the beginning, you can do most things you need to do through Reaper or a little accessible applet that uh, is in the Windows control panel. So that's what I'm using. It's an external box and it's really good quality. And that's the kind of thing that I need. Sound Blaster, I would associate that brand with gaming really more than anything else so it all depends what you want but there are plenty of very good quality audio interfaces that you can get most of them external 
So you would just plug it into a USB port and then you've got all your ports that you can plug your audio peripherals into. I noticed later in your email you do talk about music production. So if you're going to do music production, get something that's really geared to that. The Motu M4, M-O-T-U M4, is another good brand. Both of these, the Focusrite and the Motu, have a feature called Loopback. And if you don't have a mixer, that can be a real help for recording screen reader demos. I also use it when I'm recording voice over IP sessions. Clean Feed, which is what we use at Mosin at Large, records itself, of course, but it's always good to have a backup for redundancy. And let's go on with the email. Also, while I do plan to install a powerful i9 16 18-core CPU for music production, and other fun stuff, I thought I might get away with a normal GPU to save some cash. Do you think this would pose a problem with the JAWS video intercept driver not working properly for want of a fancy graphics card? No, I don't. In fact, it won't be too long before we won't have the JAWS video intercept driver at all. That's really gone. It's a thing of the past. So I think you'll be totally fine with that setup. On another note, I'm sorry to hear that Android did not cut the mustard for you. I have used it for several months and have not once looked back. I did not sell my iPhone immediately, as I thought keeping it as an insurance policy might be sensible. But after using my new Pixel for about half a day and customizing it to my liking, I knew that the iPhone would probably be as useful to me as a chocolate teapot. It went on eBay and was sold a few days later. There are a few irritants which I have learned to adapt to, like the fact that I have no mute switch on my Pixel and the fact that you tend to have to be precise with your taps. Generally, when double tapping, I find that it needs to be a short, sharp tap for it to register. And for a multi-fingered gesture, my fingers need to be more spread out. Because of this, I use fingers 1 and 3 rather than 1 and 2 to create that gap when doing, say, a two-finger double tap. The other efficiency bugbear is that it cannot keep up with my flicks if I am going too fast. On my iPhone, I used to be able to flick right or left several times very fast, probably about five or six flicks a second, and it would keep up. Not so with the Pixel. I'm guessing these are hardware issues rather than Android issues, though. Did you have similar problems with your S21? I can't really remember. I guess I'm aware that every touchscreen is a bit idiosyncratic. So I just take them for what they are. I'd have to try the flicking test next time I get it out of the drawer. Apart from that, the email continues. I'm really enjoying the level of customization and the amount of accessible apps. I got several fantastic ideas from the Blind Android Users podcast hosted by Ed Green and others and also from the associated mailing list. And I would encourage anyone even remotely interested in Android to just dip into the podcast archives and have a listen. And by the way, Uber works perfectly fine on Android. The TalkBack Braille keyboard is also awesome, aside from the fact that Google has committed the crime of the century by compelling us to use UEB. UEB for me is like soup for you. I don't think I can express it stronger than that. Gosh, no, I couldn't imagine how you could. Swearing on Mosin at large. I could go on and on about the virtues of Android, but I don't want to sound like a salesman. 
I promise I'm not being paid by Google for the PR. I do agree with you that we are in a healthy place now that there is a realistic choice of mobile platforms for blind people. Thanks, Ali, and I'm glad that Android's working out for you and all the very best with that new beast of a machine. I'm sure you'll love that. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Most of us from time to time have thought these politicians don't know what they're doing. I could do a better job. And it's kind of pub talk, isn't it? But taking that next step, running for office or standing for office, depending on where in the world you are, that takes tenacity, it takes courage, and it takes planning. And it's been my belief that we need more blind people in elected office. I've stood for Parliament here in New Zealand twice myself, and it was quite the experience. When I heard that Rebecca Blavowit had stood for Parliament as well, or run for Parliament because she's in Canada, I thought it would be great to get her on the show, compare a few notes, and learn about her story and what made her decide to be a parliamentary candidate. Rebecca, good to have you with us. Whereabouts in Canada are you? I'm in uh, western New Brunswick. For American listeners, it's like if you went to Bangor, Maine, and and kind of kept going off of the U.S. map, you'd end up in New Brunswick. You've been a listener to the Mosin Explosion and other things on Mushroom FM for a while. And through that process, I've picked up a few things about you that really fascinate me. We are going to predominantly talk about the election. But, for example, sometimes I will play a song on the Mosin Explosion and you will make a comment like... I missed out on this and all the fervor around this ah. track because I was in a monastery. So can you tell yeah. me a bit about that? It sounds like you've had a fascinating history. Oh, gosh, we could, we could spend a long time on that particular subject. It's, it was uh, five years of my life that I wouldn't trade for anything. I entered an Orthodox women's monastery, Eastern Orthodox women's monastery, with the view of becoming a nun in uh, 1997. Yeah, at that point, the, the work kind of time stopped. And, you know, it was very cloistered and there were no, you know, newspapers, no radio, no television. So I missed out on all sorts of things which had evolved by the time I left the monastery. And the thing that precipitated leaving was 9-11 because this monastery was in California and my visa was coming up for renewal, my religious worker's visa, which is a, a temporary visa in the States. You have it for like three years, and then you apply for a new one, and you apply for a new one until you, I suppose, until you apply for some sort of change of status, like citizenship or something, which it seems, you know, it's almost a, a really murky pool you don't want to put your feet into if you're a temporary religious worker. Anyway, 9-11 happened, and my visa was coming up for renewal at the same time, and they basically said, based on nothing, your monastery isn't a traditional monastery, you're not a traditional nun, you have 10 days to get out. And we, we kind of thought that perhaps they just didn't want foreigners dressed in black running around, you know, doing nefarious things like praying. So I did. I came back to Canada and then gradually kind of went back into the world, you know, back into civilian life because it's too hard to be half in and half out of something. So that's, you know, that's the story in, in a nutshell. But um, boy, what a, what a five years it was. Pretty, pretty special. 
So often when uh, people will talk about, you know, uh, 20 years ago, XYZ happened, immediately in my mind, I think, oh, 1979, which yeah. is a, a crazy thing, crazy, crazy thing. Like the, the, the deep sort of profound effects of doing something like that are, you don't even know how to calculate them. You know, they, they impact so much of your life. So, you know, DVDs hadn't been invented, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing. Kind of was if you were a geek, but um, you know it was still sort of dial-up, really, and uh, very slow connections. You know, Eudora and things like that. There were bulletin <laughs> boards, but so I came back, you know, in 2002, and I remember the almost the first conversation I had with my sister. Well, one of the not the <laughs> not by any stretch the first conversation, but at one point I said to her, "I want to get on the internet." I really wanted to learn Welsh at that point, and I said, "I, I think I need to get on the internet." And she said, well, let's start. Do you have a service provider? And my response was, well, I have a button on my computer that says Internet Explorer. And she said, no, that, that is not how you get on the Internet. You can't click that. Nothing is going to happen until you get hooked up with a, a service provider. <laughs> so I, I really, so many things had changed in that five years that I, you know, the, the tech bubble had happened. Um, I don't know, just tons of things had changed. And, uh, yeah, quite a crazy experience to, to do that. But given that the decision to go back to Canada was not of your making, that must have been extraordinarily jarring. I mean, you hadn't experienced a crisis of faith or anything. It's like you had sort of oh. been jettisoned. You'd been propelled back into society. Yeah, it was it was jarring. I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm always up for an adventure. Like, I'm not, I'm not the sort of person who would shy away from doing something interesting. So I certainly deeply missed home. And that hadn't gone away for five years. And so there were times when I was extremely homesick. Not that I think Canada is doing everything right by any stretch. Canada isn't perfect. And I'm, I'm not, um, I guess that's why I ended up running for politics, because I don't think it is. But I missed it. You know, it's still my culture. And so I wasn't entirely sorry to be coming home when I had to leave. And, uh, you know, I like, I like jazz. I like a glass of wine at the, you know, at the side of a pool. I, I mean, there, there were, there were, sort of frivolous things that I that I didn't mind getting back into, coming back to the world. But so. you, you stood as a Green Party candidate last year, is that correct? Yes. Yes, I did. So I don't know whether the parameters are a bit different in Canada, but in New Zealand and many other countries, we consider the Greens to be on the left of the spectrum. And it yep. seems to me, based on the description of your time in the monastery, that, that typically people who pursue those sorts of options are generally very conservative. Oh, that's a... Wow. Um, that's a big question that I think we'd have to unpack a little bit. I think often sort of, sort of deeply religious people or people who call themselves Orthodox, or it's not the same thing at all, but evangelical, you know, people who are, for whom their faith sort of suffuses their entire life actively. Yeah, you're right. It tends to be conservative people who would say that, but that's not altogether true. Sometimes it can just be, you know, if you have a, a deep passion for the environment and, and somehow you see stewardship of creation as being part and parcel of that, or the the commandments about, you know, do unto others, suddenly love your neighbor as yourself. Th those kinds of things become an imperative about respect for diversity and leaving the world somehow in a better place than when you found it. I don't think there's any contradiction, but 
it doesn't always get translated like that in in modern Christianity. That's a very interesting comment because our first Labour Party Prime Minister in New Zealand was a guy named Michael Joseph Savage, and he was in power in 1935 until his death in 1940. He used to say that socialism is applied Christianity, and I think that's a very interesting comment. I would totally agree with that. Mm. I would completely agree with that, yeah. Yep. Although there's no ism that's going to get it right ever because it's a fallen world and put not your trust in princes and the sons of men in whom there is no salvation, right, as it says in the Psalms. But I would think that, that that's absolutely true. In order to love your neighbor as yourself, there has to be some degree of socialism happening. There has to. So why is it then that, particularly in the United States, Christianity has been hijacked by so many people who seem to be lacking in any empathy, who are climate change deniers, anti-vaxxers, really at the at the extreme grinchy end of the spectrum? What's going on there? I think some would say that it, it's actually a lot to do with radio, believe it or not. Alt-right radio, the people who, who started to kind of get voices on talk radio in the States were sort of the preachers. They were the, the well, I mean, Ronald Reagan was one of the, the first well-known uh, celebs, I think, to get a national radio program. And he had a very no-nonsense kind of back-to-basics. Uh, that's a, a Canadian, Canadian, you know, Ontario people will recognize that reference to Mike Harris. But, um, you know, uh, Reagan was very much uh, cut cut the government bureaucracy and, and get back to just people being able to do what they do best, which is make money and live their life. And, and um, I think that's where it started. It was sort of Ronald Reagan and then Rush Limbaugh and then others. It is a fascinating history. Fifty years ago when the Watergate scandal was happening, Republicans and, and Democrats were able to sort of reach across the aisle and say, no, no, this is just morally wrong. You know, we can't let this guy continue because he's just going to wreck democracy in our country. So it hadn't yet been hijacked then. Right. And in fact, some of the social policy initiatives that Nixon was responsible for would just not at all be considered appropriate by today's Republicans. No. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, back to sort of the Green Party thing, the conservative prime minister who was in, in Canada for, I don't know, 12 years or something, he kept getting elected. And, and his name was Brian Mulroney. He was the one who was in when they passed what was called the Clean Air Act, when they were so worried about acid rain. Mulroney was one of the, the politicians who was absolutely at the climate change conferences, you know, in the, in the very early 90s when, when these things were just starting to be talked about. So you're absolutely right. You know, whether it was Nixon's policies or, or Mulroney a, a decade later in Canada, they wouldn't be considered Republicans now. They wouldn't be able to stay in that party. I'm sure. So this is good. We've been able to explore what I perceived initially as the dichotomy between your past life and you running as a Green Party candidate. But I guess I also want to explore, before we go into the details of what the campaign was like, the fact that it still would have been a big sacrifice if you had been elected, because you're living quite an idyllic, isolated kind of lifestyle right now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. We do. We live in a beautiful part of the northeastern continent of North America. Amazing, amazing part of the country, you know, where you can stop by woods on a, on a snowy evening quite easily with a guide dog. There's trees, there's birds singing or not at this time of year. 
Um, and it's, it's just idyllic and beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, if I had one, well, I mean, in this pandemic, I think there's a lot of things that are happening virtually. And certainly the Greens would have been pushing for some sort of hybrid parliament. So not everybody would have had to go all the way to Ottawa all the time. But you're right, it would have been a tremendous upheaval. So why were you willing to entertain that upheaval in your life? What motivated you to take that step to run for office? Well, there were, there were a few things. One was, there's a phrase from the, the Lord of the Rings, small hands must do the work while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. I just felt like, okay, I can wait for other people to, to step up. But if I feel like I could offer something, I'm remiss if I don't. So there was that. And the, the leader of the Green Party at the time was the first uh, black woman to be a leader of a Canadian party, and she was also Jewish. And she really uh, put a call out for the term is equity-seeking groups, people from diverse backgrounds and, and things, and I would say people in the margins, to step forward because we represent pretty significant segments of society and we need to be represented in the political decision. So that was that was part of it. It was her, her sort of call to, to run. Also just the fact that accessibility doesn't get any real attention except once in a great while. And it seemed like if, if I could be a person who's there in Parliament or even just having run the race, whether I'm actually on the accessibility file, which I don't think is, would be necessary necessarily <laughs> would be necessarily necessarily just to sort of be there and be a presence there it it raises the question of accessibility all the time so yeah there's lots of lots of good reasons to run for those people not familiar can we just talk through how the canadian electoral system works okay we can try um, <laughs> i mean it's a pretty traditional uh, westminster system isn't it yeah, it really, I mean, it, unfortunately, we're really trying to, you know, the smaller parties would really like to get rid of this first-past-the-post thing and get right. into some sort of proportional ranked ballot or, or something like that. But at the moment, the country is divided into 338 ridings, and presumably all the parties are trying to get candidates in every single riding, riding being a geographical you know, location. It's an interesting term uh, because then, in, in many other countries in Westminster systems, we would call those electorates or districts or something, but Canada uses the term mm-hmm. riding. Yeah, riding or um, electoral district. Right. Or, I mean, lots of terms are kind of interchangeable, but mm-hmm. yeah, electoral district, I, I suppose, is also, maybe riding is more provincial, like more when you get sort of the, the yeah, provincial sort of at the state level. At the provincial level, writings are used more, but we—I don't know—I I tend to use them interchangeably. I right. think others do. So then there's an election, and after a, a particular campaigning time, and it can be as short as 37 days, <laughs> or it can be really protracted, long and and silly. And then you know, on election night, a person would cast a ballot, uh, and you vote for one of the people who are listed on the ballot for your particular riding. So. If you're in in our riding in New Brunswick, which is happens to be called Toby Kmaktaquak, which I like saying, you vote for the the liberal candidate or the green candidate or the conservative candidate, so Tory or Republican maybe, or the People's Party of Canada, which is even more Republican. You vote for that person, and then depending on how many ridings return votes for a party, that particular leader is the one who becomes prime minister in Ottawa. Hmm. 
Same in New Zealand? Is that how it works? No, we got rid of first past the post um, by virtue of a referendum process. And we have a proportional system now. So we do have the electorates, but we also have a party vote. So we have two votes. You get to vote who you want to represent you locally on local issues, but then you also have a party vote, which determines the proportionality of the seats in parliament. And if a party wins more party votes than their electoral vote has given them, then the party vote is topped up by uh, people on a party list. That's why I think that that description is important because in New Zealand, at least in theory, it's possible for somebody to run on some sort of national community of interest like disability or, I don't know, any any number okay. of other, say, say, Pacific Island issues or something like that. But, of course, okay. in Canada, the only option you have is to represent your local constituency and potentially to sort of take a national portfolio in addition. So when you were making the decision to run, did you think of yourself as a disability issues candidate or a Green Party candidate who happens to be blind? Yeah, that more. I I think I would have preferred if I had gotten in and and there'd been any, any choice as to what portfolio I would have taken or what I would have found myself interested in. It would have been, you know, food security or... Possibly, I mean, certainly there are issues like transport, you know, public transport. The other thing that complicates our system is that some issues are very, very much federal issues, national issues, and other things are provincial. So healthcare and education are, you know, housing. Those are all provincial. Those are all handled by the state, state level. So New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, they're the people who make the decisions about Things to do with uh, with healthcare. On the other hand, oddly enough, public transportation is a federal issue, and municipalities have something to do with it. You know, national defense obviously is national. Forestry is national. Energy is national. Somebody's going to correct me. I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's really awkward because this with the pandemic, you know, people want the federal government to do something. You know about lockdowns and mandate vaccine mandates and the federal government kind of keeps passing the buck back to the provinces and saying well this is actually your jurisdiction so you have 10 provinces and and three territories that can't really agree on what to do so we're sort of at a in some ways in a in a bit of a stalemate you know provinces have some jurisdiction over certain things roads roads are provincial it's really really not a good system it's very clunky and our country's huge right so there's not going to be regional agreement either. You know, you're going to have the, the prairies want something different than the Maritimes and, and, you know, Ontario wants something different than British Columbia, which is way over on the West Coast. And, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador have different concerns than Quebec. It's very, very, or the territory, right? The territories just kind of get forgotten about, which brings me into sort of indigenous issues, which is another huge, huge topic. But, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have seen myself as a disability candidate. I, I think it's too close, maybe. I've thought about this, and I, I think that, for me, perhaps it's it's something that I feel as though perhaps I need to push others to, to fight that battle along with me, but it couldn't be my uh, torch to carry. I don't know. I could change my mind if, if I were put in a position where I, you know, had to do it. But I don't consider myself an expert. I think this is one of the challenges that disabled people face in a Westminster-based system. And this is one of the challenges David Blunkett faced as well. I don't know if you're familiar with David Blunkett. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, We were living in Britain when he was 
in power. Yeah, come to think of it, we were living in Britain when he was my husband and I were living right in Britain. When so he became Home Secretary. We've interviewed him on the blind side. He he became Home Secretary during nine oh. eleven, in fact. And um, he obviously was a very successful cabinet minister, but he made the call under Britain's Westminster system not to be pigeonholed. And so while right. he didn't deny his blindness, I mean, it was hard. Every time his guide dog changed or something like that, it was national news on yeah. the BBC. Yeah, but but, but <laughs> yeah. he, he chose to be a constituency MP who right. happened to be blind, and he didn't want to be pigeonholed. Uh, now that he's in the right. House of Lords, he's a lot more willing to take up disability causes, whereas the system we have here in New Zealand, of course, obviously does facilitate somebody championing disability issues at a national level and going after that disability yep. vote. So it is, I think, a, a different characteristic of the That's two true. systems. Yeah, and, and each one has its strengths, I think. I think the one thing that you can certainly say about politicians who don't want to be pigeonholed is that accessibility is a really easy thing to, to gloss over anyway. And so if you, as a as a disabled politician, are saying, I don't want to be pigeonholed, then the media can go, righty-ho, then. We just won't even, you know what I mean? We'll just ignore it completely. And we can talk about the guide dog because that's a fun thing. But um, we don't really have to address uh, issues of accessibility because you're not addressing them. When you put your name forward then, did you face any how-will-you kind of questions? Did you face any doubts that were blindness-specific that you had to confront and deal with? You mean among among sort of members of the, the public? Or well, I suppose the there's a two-stage two process, isn't there? Firstly, there's a selection as the candidate, and so you have yeah. to win the party's confidence. But then, of course, right. you know, I remember from my own experience of running under the – I've done it twice uh, under MMP, yeah. our <laughs> proportional system. But the first time, we okay. still had first past the post, so I was running as a constituency candidate. And I remember okay. – being at a public meeting and it was a packed public meeting and this guy got up at the back of the hall when it was Q&A time and he said, you're going to have a hard time if you're elected. Who's going to be your eyes? So, you know, people people will have those how do you type questions and I wondered if you yeah. had had to confront those both in the selection and the, the, the candidacy process. No, I didn't. I didn't, um, which is quite amazing actually. Um I I, ha I didn't have to, but I think the pandemic has changed a lot of how campaign happened this year. A lot of it was virtual, and uh, so I, you know, I did certainly do some door knocking, and nobody had any questions like that. And virtually, they wouldn't either because the, the blindness kind of didn't. It wasn't, you know, confronting them visually as we were talking on the telephone. I think if we weren't in a pandemic and there was a lot more in person. Q&A stuff happening, absolutely those kind of questions would come up. And, oh my, you, you, I'm, I'm curious, how did you deal with that question? Because depending on a person's mood, you could respond in a couple different ways, one of which would gain you votes and one would, one of which would not gain you votes. Well, actually, what happened after he asked this question was the crowd got really hostile and they booed this guy. And so I, resp really? I responded and I said, look, He's had the courage to ask the question that I think is probably on the lips of several people who feel uncomfortable yeah. about asking it, and I'm happy to answer it. And we talked about technology and various things like that. Yeah. But, right. uh, but you know, people, people do have those questions. When you went door knocking, did you go door knocking with your guide dog? Uh, at, the, at the time, I didn't have a guide dog. Ah. I, had, I was in guide dogs. I had a cane. 
Right. And um, and I was with my husband, and he just waited in the car. He didn't want any part of the of the actual door knocking thing. He would just kind of drive and show me where the houses were. Which door knocking with a white cane is <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <is a> challenge. <laughs> um, especially in rural rural New Brunswick, where nobody's house is configured in a way that you expect it. You know, the porches are definitely not uh, configured in a way that you'd expect them to be. Uh, whatever that is, but I think people were delighted to meet a candidate who looked different than the usual, you know, sort of middle-aged white guy, frankly. Um, <laughs> that's what I think. That's what I think. I think they were, you know, I'm I'm not a, a I was in, I was running in a riding where 90% of the people speak French. And so I turn up at the door, clearly not a francophone, but perhaps, but, but quite prepared to have a conversation in French with them. Standing there with a white cane, obviously vision impaired, I think it was just probably a lot. And I don't think, I think it would have been after I left that they would have gone, the hell was that? Like, wow, how, how does she, wow, what, what, you know, what just happened? That, that is not the usual candidate we get up here. Hmm. So, um, I don't know. I didn't have the experience you're talking about, but, um, sounds like you, you gave me a good idea. Should I ever encounter it? Well, I mean, Canadians are, are, are notably polite, aren't they? This is the thing that Canadians are famous for, is, is being polite. Famous and, for it, yeah. Yes, yes. So yeah. Well, we're not. I'm not sure that it's a deserved uh, notion, but um, but certainly people might not ask the question. They might, you know, put it online after the fact or something like that, you know, so. <laughs> I was in a guide dog handler when I did my first campaign where I did a lot of door knocking in that campaign. And I must say, it was a real experience because it taught me that most people are not as engaged with or interested in the political process as I am. Uh, really, right. you know, people, people are just so switched off. But I did wonder later the degree to which the dynamic would have changed if I had been a guide dog handler at the time, because we always hear about how guide dogs are an icebreaker. And I think it would have been interesting to just turn up at the door with a guide dog. I guess she would have frightened some people, but she may well have been that icebreaker as well and, and been a kind of a memory jogger. Possibly. Uh, yes. Oh, definitely that. Definitely that. But the the question then becomes, would the focus have been on the guide dog? Would they have, would they, it depends on what they're, how they would characterize a blind person later anyway. If they already have the presupposition that, oh, that person's vision impaired, they're not going to be able to deliver, then the guide dog wouldn't be the sort of memory jogger that you'd want. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It, it just depends on how people characterize blind people right off the bat with, with, their first, with their first reaction when they see a blind person. Is this a helpless individual or is this a, you know, a courageous individual? And uh, that that would dictate whether they vote for you, I suppose. Did your candidacy elicit any media interest because a blind person was running, or is that not really considered a novelty in Canada that's sufficient for media attention? Well, see, the ca this campaign was very short. This yeah. campaign was thirty-seven days, and which I think was deliberate on the part of the the governing party at the time. They knew that, that only the other big party would have been prepared to, to run a full slate of candidates, and so it would be either the Liberals or the Conservatives that would get back in. But, sorry, I keep taking pot shots at them. <laughs> Stop that. Um, but the, the thing is, I don't think there was enough time to sort of develop those kinds of storylines, really. I think the media was so taken, they were as taken off guard by the election as everybody else was, and I think they just needed to get, you know, all of the candidates in front of microphones, you know, or in front of cameras to 
to interview them. So the, the, that, there wasn't enough time to develop those kinds of personal interest stories, I don't think. So no, it wasn't even a factor. I think it would have been if the election had been longer, and it might be if I run again, because my name will, will be um, already known. They won't have to do a lot of the background reading or whatever that they had to the previous time, if you know what I mean. Mm. I'm already, I'd already a name. Given how short the campaign was and the fact that it was being conducted in a pandemic, did you have to do any of those meetings where you go along and you debate with other candidates? Yes. Yes, we did, actually. Yeah, that was fun. Well, it was really nerve-wracking, but it was also really interesting. There were a couple of televised debates. There was a, there was a televised one, and then there was one that the one of the universities held. That was great. It was interesting to meet the other candidates and to... And to see them operate on stage, and they but they were very equitable in how they divided up the the questions. Everybody had the same amount of airtime. Everybody had the, the questions were kind of drawn by lottery, so you didn't get questions that that they thought would target you necessarily in the first round. And then in the second round, they did. They really kind of dug in, and everybody got something that was a bit thorny for their party. And uh, no, it was it was good. It was it was quite good. It it certainly made me practice. Uh, brush up on my platform and <laughs> on theirs. But you would have been able to hold your own in that environment. I imagine you would probably have enjoyed that. In in English, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. This was in French. I had to really think quickly. Um, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good challenge. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot after the fact. It's a little bit like, for me, you know, writing an exam. I love, I love studying. And so I, I always enjoy having written an exam. Um, but, you know, it's nerve-wracking leading up to it because you don't know what questions are going to be on it. Did you have to do any of those debates in your... In oh, your yeah, and I love um, that stuff, and I still remember the headline, yeah. Mosin out-talks rivals in debate, because I did. I really, <laughs> really, really enjoy that stuff. I imagine that it would be a fairly conservative okay. electorate that you're in, a riding yes. that you're in? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, rural ridings tend to be extremely conservative. Yes. Although this one, the the, the interestingly, the... The, the riding that I was running in is, is as I say, predominantly Francophone. Uh, Francophones in New Brunswick tend to support the Liberals. Anglophones in New Brunswick tend to be more conservative, and they tend to support the PC, which is a progressive conservative, or the People's Party of Canada, which is, you know, basically the anti-vaxxers. On the other hand, the farther right you go, the closer you are to the left, right? So um, <laughs> People's Party of Canada, the, you, you keep moving around the, the circle, and you end up in the Green Party. There's some overlap oddly enough, between people who would support, the, say, the People's Party of Canada and people who would support the Green Party, um, environmental issues, you know, rural, often they're rural people in our part of the world anyway, able to sort of step out and, and do it do it yourself kind of people. But at the same time, uh, the Greens, of course, want, you know, some... There's a, they need, We need a, a social network, a social structure, a social safety... Net and People's Party of Canada really doesn't care about that. So that's the that's that starts to be the difference. You know how much government oversight do you want is where you de- the the right the the dateline happens right there. So the riding I was in is very much a safe liberal seat, and the riding I live in, which is the Anglophone riding to the south of that, is very much a safe conservative seat. Right. So, and how did you end up polling on election night? Oh, terribly. I was above the national average. I think I was, I had 3%. The national average for the Green Party was 2%. Terrible, 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 terrible. 2019 was a far better election. We were, 
the Greens were in the, you know, in the, in the, the sort of the 10 percentile, 11, 12, you know, second place in many, in many ridings, second place out of, you know, three, four, five parties. But no, this election was, was just abysmal. There were a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but, um, being a, a Green in a, in a safe liberal riding wasn't, wasn't a, a sure bet. On my part, you know, it was it was it was a, a. I just wanted to stand, you know. I wanted to to be. Uh, see, I said stand for parliament. Yeah, I just wanted to put my name forward and 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 be a Green Party candidate that voters could vote their conscience for on election night, knowing pretty well that we weren't going to get in. Is that one of the things that made it safe for you to run? Actually, that you realized that you were not going to get elected this time. That's right. There's a lot of room between knowing you're not going to win and and polling as terribly as I did. But yeah, I, I think I I knew that this was going to be probably a, a trial run. If I was going to run again, this was going to be the practice, and and so I could just go for it and learn, and uh, and think, okay, if I if I run again for this riding, I'll know what to expect, and I'll I'll have you know a team in place by then, and that sort of thing. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I might I might run provincially next time. But um, I, I don't think I'm done with politics by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I don't know. We'll we'll see. What lessons might you be able to pass on to other blind people who are thinking about running and uh, putting themselves forward? It's a big decision to put yourself out there in the public arena like that. A couple things I would say. One is, if you're the sort of person who was born blind and you went to a school for the blind, you might have some of that the self-talk that's negative that says, oh, come on, you know, lots of people who are better qualified and blah, 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 better, better, have more life experience or have, you know, are better qualified or better connected are going to do it and they're going to do a better job. So just get out of the way and let them do it and don't make any waves. If you've got that kind of talk in your head, try to ignore it and go for it. If you, if you have a desire to be in the, in the political arena, Know that you have as much to contribute as, as absolutely anybody else does and more. The, you know, the statistics show that people with disabilities work harder, stay in jobs longer, because we have to. We have to work harder all the time. So we're, we tend to be resourceful. So take those qualities and use them as a, as a way of bolstering yourself when you start to feel like, oh, this is, this is crazy. What am I doing? Nobody's, nobody's going to even notice that I'm, that I'm here. And that some of that negativity might come from members of your family. It might come from other blind friends who maybe don't have the guts to do it, and you do. So ignore it. Try to ignore it and and go for it. And if you if you feel that you might have something to contribute in the in the political arena, follow that instinct. Also, reach out to people in in your party. Get find some people that you trust, uh, whose whose advice seems sensible. And and ask them your questions. Don't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel. Ask questions because you can be sure that if you're asking the questions, other other first time candidates are also asking the questions. Maybe second time and third time candidates. Are there any blindness accommodations that you used, or in retrospect, you feel you would have benefited from? Well, something as simple as having you know accessible PDF documents. Or you know stuff in a word document. I was very clear when I when I talked to people in the party. I would say you know at at head office I would say okay if you're going to send me documents don't just please just don't don't just put it up a graphical PDF 
can you send it to me as a Word document so that I can put it in Braille? I would sort of oversimplify the accessibility requirements a little bit, but I thought they might understand if I say, give it to me in a Word document so that I can put it in Braille, even though I may not have put a 300-page platform in Braille. You need the material and you need it in a timely manner and you need it in a, a format that's accessible. There's a whole process online which you have to go through in order to put your name, just to put your name forward. And some parts of that weren't accessible. So I just had to call the help desk and say, look, you just need to help me walk through this because I'm vision impaired. And yeah, just be prepared to ask for help when you need it. I think that's the only other sort of blindness um, accommodation I would say. What 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 kinds of things did you find, uh, you know, you needed from from the party? I think the the main thing for me was actually, as somebody who also has a hearing impairment, which was not as pronounced as it is now, I just decided that when doing the door knocking thing, I would be accompanied by a volunteer. And really, that didn't seem to disadvantage me because a lot of people, a lot of electoral candidates turn up with other party people, you know, yeah. that have a buddy. For oh, yeah, some, somebody some needs to take notes. I mean, you do the yeah. talking and they take notes because yeah. they've got to put it into the data entry system so you know next time who, who was at number 65, you know, whatever. Yeah, if, yeah. In, if anything, yeah. I think what I was able to contribute was to keep pointing out that there is a disability market out there that's feeling ignored. I'm thinking, for example, these days, and it didn't apply when I was running, but things like, parties who tweet photos that don't have accessible images. And whenever I see that from New Zealand political parties, I immediately think, hell, you want my vote, but you're not prepared to make the information accessible? Go away. Well, they don't even know. I think the problem is that a lot of times people don't even realize they're eliminating a sector of the population by doing that. They just figure blind people have magical computers that are going to interpret everything or you know, that blind guy over there is going to have somebody to read him the tweets. Mm. You know, I've got family members who put pictures up on Facebook and don't provide any description. And I'll say, what was that? And they'll say, get your husband to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. So if if our families do it, then there's no, there's no reason to be surprised that political parties will do it. And I guess we just have to, being the squeaky wheel somehow. That's right. That's precisely why being in the arena, even if you're not running as a disability candidate, just makes the difference because you're you're on the inside yeah. and you can point those things out. So it sounds like we haven't okay. seen the last of you in terms of political candidacy. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I'm uh, I'm I'm up for a, another go, whether it's at the provincial level or the federal level. What about you? Are you going to run again? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not even going to comment on that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, you have to talk to Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, 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 a, it's been a pretty hot topic lately, actually. So I, <laughs> I, oh, I, all right. Say yeah. no more. Say no more. No, I've been, I've, been asked, um, I've been asked about that, and I just don't know. It has been a real pleasure chatting with you about this. Congratulations for putting your name forward and being encountered because that takes a lot of courage and i look forward to finding out what happens next and and where your political will takes you well thank you for your your interest and and always being so interested in what people in the blind community around the world are are doing you're a great voice for all of us and great great to have mushroom fm and the team and everybody big big thanks thank you on twitter 
follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Brian Harchin has emailed in and says, I'm wondering if anyone who works in the area of DAISY content creation can please help. I have audio files for our training courses and text transcripts to accompany them. The transcripts contain a precise replica of everything spoken in the audio. I wanted to create DAISY books to synchronize the text with the audio. It's not something we need to do, but I thought other blind people might appreciate it. I first tried the most used product for DAISY authoring, Dolphin Publisher. After speaking to the head of production distribution at Dolphin, it seems it is not possible to achieve synchronization using the keyboard, only with the mouse. Goodness. So my next port of call was APH to use Book Wizard Producer. This was a much more accessible application to work with anyway. But while in the user guide it states you can synchronize text and audio, no one at APH seems to have any idea how to help me go about it. I corresponded with them and they said the program has not been updated since 2010 and no one there knows how to synchronize the text and audio. So what we seem to be saying is that as blind people, we cannot produce this kind of content where we are likely to be one of the primary beneficiaries of it. Does anyone please have any suggestions? Thank you, Brian. I'm wondering if Larry Scootcon is still listening. I know that he used to lurk about listening to Mosin at Large from time to time, and we were very fortunate to get a string of contributions from him. So, Larry, if you're out there, perhaps you know how to synchronize text and audio. I, for one, Brian, think this is a fantastic initiative, and I thank you for continuing to pursue it, because wouldn't it be just great to search for a particular string in a daisy book, get the text that you want, but also then just hit play and have it pick up from where you need it to? Absolutely epic. I hope you get this sorted, and if anyone can give some hints and tips to Brian, that would be very good indeed. Greetings there, Jonathan. Angus Munkinen from British Columbia, Canada. There is um no shopping for you. Have you heard of the Zoom F3 and F6 recorder? Uh, they sound right up your alley. I uh, don't know if you're aware of them or, or what. One person you might want to talk to is Alex Lindsay. Uh, he's an engineer and he does a lot of uh, stuff uh, with video, but he also does audio and all that type of stuff. So it might be interesting uh, for for you. Uh, you could get together and really uh, speak the speak. So um, since you you two birds are of the same feather. Good to hear from you, Angus, and thank you for the referral. You can go all the way back to the very early episodes of Mosin at Large for a reference to the Zoom F6. And then in episode 35, it was devoted to the Zoom F6 as Gary O'Donoghue gave a comprehensive review, demonstration from a blindness perspective about how to operate the recorder. And I subsequently bought a Zoom F6. And some of the demos that we've done, things like the Fire TV stick, walking around with seeing AI, walking around with the air tags when we did that demo and a few other things as well. They've all been recorded with the Zoom F6. So yeah, I know about it. I have one. It's a wonderful recorder. The 32-bit float capability is great. The app is pretty good 
And overall, I highly recommend it if you're interested in a serious field recorder. To India we go for this email from Anil, who says, Hello, Jonathan. While I do not have any opinion on using the word blind in various contexts, I agree with you about the statement that people are very scared to even think about being a blind person. I remember a popular warning given by teachers to discipline the kindergarten students. If you misbehave, I'll lock you up in a dark room. Also, what it suggests is that people associate blindness with darkness, and it qualifies them to use the word blind to refer to a person who is ignorant. I'm interested to hear thoughts from you and podcast listeners. Absolutely, Anil. People fear the dark. It's understandable, I guess. Sight is a very dominant sense, so if you have it, you depend on it, and you can't imagine how those who don't have it can function. And it's up to us to change those perceptions, tough though it may be. Let us get back to the ongoing saga of the human web. Brilliant, and this email says, Hi, Jonathan and all. I have had the Brilliant BI-40X, and I have this issue as well. Recently, my space keys have been very noisy. My display got fixed, but this issue is back again. I sent it away to get it fixed again, and yesterday, my Braille with an uppercase B display has arrived. It was caused by hair from my guide dog entering into the space key and causing the noise. Hopefully, this will not happen again. Once a year for servicing is fine, but twice in a month is not. Sean Clark writes, Hello, Mr. Mosin. Well, hello, Mr. Clark. I was asking your advice. Do you know of any crowdfunding sites that work very well with the iPhone's voiceover screen reader? I am trying to just have a party for people with disabilities in my area, and I'm hoping to do it again, actually, in the fall, if I can raise enough this time. But I'd like to try a different crowdfunding site, or at least how to use this one better. If you have any advice, I would appreciate it. Thank you, and have a lovely day, says Sean in Nova Scotia, and he's using GoFundMe at the moment. Every so often I may give to a GoFundMe or a crowdfunded thing, but not often, I have to confess. So it's not something I know too much about in terms of whether there's one site that stands out for accessibility or, conversely, whether there's one site that's particularly problematic. So if anyone has anything to share on this, accessible crowdfunding sites, if you were setting up a crowdfunding initiative, what would you recommend based on your experience. Be in touch. 864-60-MOSIN is my number. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is my email. I'm not sure how much of a fan of dictaphones I am because they're often used by dictators. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hi, Jonathan says Louis, hoping you can help me with this. I'm trying to teach myself piano and I found a service that sells online slash digital lessons. It's at www.pianobyear.biz. That's all joined together, pianobyear.biz. I've been playing them on my Victor Reader, but the Victor Reader doesn't move back and forth in small enough increments. The service provides MP3 files where the vendor literally tells you which keys to press and how to form the chords. I'm looking to get a dictaphone where I can leave both hands on the keyboard and start and stop the instructions. Any suggestions? Louis, I have no suggestions to offer, but it's a great question, and hopefully somebody can talk about dictaphones that are still out there that will play an MP3 file. Maybe there is some sort of pedal that you can get for your computer, if that's viable for you, where you might be able to plug in a pedal into the USB port or something and use the controls on the pedal. So let's see what the Mosin at Large community can come back with 
on this one. I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.